am delighted to be here, which is sort of the obligatory thing that people say, but I literally am delighted to be here because this is uh, a culmination of many, many years in the making. It almost uh, makes me emotional to think that when I became a part of Bethel uh, eight years ago, uh, we were one location. And now to think of this is Bethel, we are Bethel in four locations impacting and influencing East Texas. I'm delighted to be here and I'm thankful to be here. Uh, I'm thankful for my pastor, Ross Strader, who is a good friend, who is my pastor. I told him the other day that uh, when I die, he's going to do my funeral, but that it has to be all original material. He said, I'll Google something. So I appreciated that about Ross. Sharing the pulpit with Ross Strader is like, I just wanted to see what it feels like to pause like that. I've never done that before, but I thought, wow, Ross, he got, gets a whole bit of exercise while he pauses there. So I'm delighted to get to stand here where Ross typically does. And I am very thankful for Bethel in general and Ross in particular, because here's what I can tell you about our pastor, Ross Strader. That guy loves God's word. That guy knows that when we study God's word, God speaks to us in the present that we don't just read God's word to learn something, that it does something in us and through us. And so that is our hope and our expectation this morning that as we go to God's word, that the Lord God will speak. We say this all the time. I don't know how you think you came to be in this place this morning, but we believe this, that God has divinely directed your steps to be here, which means in his sovereignty and his grace, he wants to communicate and connect with every single person in this room through his revealed and inspired word. And so to that end, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to dive right into Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I would love for you to have this in front of you in some capacity. We'll put it on screen for you, of course, as well. But I'd love for you to either have a Bible open in your lap or on your device. Or if someone near you is not paying attention, just reach over and grab theirs. It'll be fine. I want you to have this near you. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 13 verses. And then we'll try to unpack this a little bit. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removed people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is God's word. It is true that in times of crisis or fear or uncertainty or doubt, sometimes our thinking is expanded and it is moved sometimes forcibly from the temporal and the immediate to the eternal and the long range. Sometimes seasons of struggle come into our lives so that we can see with a longer range vision. Sometimes it needs to get darker around us so that we can see the lights that are far from us. I grew up in the Texas Panhandle where we only got electricity about 12 years ago. That's a true story. And when you walk outside at night, it's black. You can't see this. But what you can see are light years of stars as far away as you can possibly imagine. Because it's so dark around you, you can see the brilliance of the lights far from you. And sometimes that's what has to happen in our lives. We have to go through seasons of struggle, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, so that we can have an expansion of our thinking. Some of you know this about me. I can remember about two and a half years ago, I had a pretty significant health experience. I had a massive heart attack and began to deteriorate rapidly one afternoon. And I can remember as things began to shut down and I was kind of drifting in and out, I remember having two thoughts. The first was, <laughs> this is going to be so cool. I'd been thinking about preaching on, studying about Jesus for so long, and I thought, I'm actually going to see him. It's going to be great. But right on the heels of that, I also began to think, man, what is that going to mean for my wife? What is that going to mean for my two sons? How is life going to go for them? And my thinking was elongated, expanded, and it went into the eternal. And for the first time in many, many months that year, I could not have cared less that the Cowboys were not going to make the playoffs again. It just didn't seem to matter. See, a crisis, uh, a season of struggle came into my life and that allowed me to expand my thinking. You see, our thinking matters. Our thinking matters massively and our thoughts have spiritual mass. That's why in this month we're spending an entire month on these attributes of God where we're learning some facet, some aspect of the character of God. This morning we're going to look at the holiness of God so that our thinking and our feeling will ever increasingly be more attuned to that which is true. Because, as A.W. Tozer has rightly said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's not where you live, it's not what you drive, it's not who you marry, it's not even how you vote. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you as a person. Now, if that's true, and it is, then we owe it to ourselves and to our maker to think ever increasingly rightly about this God, to feel ever increasingly deeply about this God. Because what God desires most is to be recognized. Because A, he knows that he's worth that. And B, he knows that it is what is best for us. 
if we will but simply pause, reflect, rightly and regularly recognize our God. What we come to see through this passage and through the entirety of Scripture is that God is holy. It's our attribute for this morning. So I want to begin back in chapter 6. I'll start reading in verse 1. We're going to unpack this, and then we'll see how this text applies directly to us. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning again in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now there's a lot going on here that I need to unpack that'll sort of set the stage. It'll build the context and the framework for the rest of this chapter. It's the year that King Uzziah died. It is a dark, dark time, a season of crisis in the nation of Israel. More specifically, more precisely, in the southern kingdom. See, it's 150 years since Solomon has died. Solomon died 150 years earlier and the kingdom was split. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The ten tribes are essentially apostate. They have departed. They have thought wrongly about God. As a result, God has raised up the superpower of the day, the Assyrians from the north, and they have raided and harassed the northern tribes and have almost destroyed them. And in 15 years from the writing of Isaiah, the northern tribes would be utterly devastated and decimated. They'll be carried off in exile, never to reform again. And then God will judge the Assyrians for the way that they do it. The people for five chapters in Isaiah have been the recipients of indictment after indictment where God, through Isaiah, has said, you are thinking too small about me. You're thinking too little of me. You're not considering me. You are choosing to forget me. And because of that errant thinking about me, God says, you are now choosing to harm one another. Errant thinking of God always manifests itself in people treating others poorly. I'm going to say that one more time because that is a massive human truth. Wrong thinking about God always manifests in wrong treatment of others. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, God says, but I am holy and I will move forward in my holiness and righteousness to judge. But at least there's one good guy. At least there's one. There's a man named Uzziah. The Old Testament almost never calls a king good. No kings in the north are ever called good. There's a couple kings in the southern kingdom that are called good, and Uzziah is one of them. He's crowned king at the age of 16. Now, I have a 16-year-old, and him being responsible for anything gives me night terrors. But this guy, Uzziah, is crowned king at the age of 16, and he rules for 52 years. That's incredible. He dies at the age of 68 and he would have lived longer had his life not ended in calamity and moral collapse. The average life expectancy in the 8th century BC in this region is 38 years old. This guy lives to be 68 years old. And he's a good king, essentially. He rebuilds a lot of the infrastructure of the nation. He uses the resources and the wealth of the nation to provide Uh, institutions for the people. He tears down the high places of pagan worship and idolatry. In the midst of all of this other wickedness and idolatry, at least there's one good guy, Uzziah. But it's the year that he died. Why did he die? God wasn't moving quickly enough for King Uzziah, and so he decides to take action on his own. He decides to force the hand of God to act on his behalf. By the way, that's always a bad strategy. 
The Assyrians are beginning to exert additional pressure from the north. We can read all about this in 2 Chronicles 26. We won't turn there right now. But in 2 Chronicles 26, we learn that Uzziah, not wanting to wait patiently upon the Lord, enters the temple of God and he burns incense. This king tries to behave like a priest and God will not have it. There's only one priest king and he will not arrive on the scene for another 740 years. He goes in the temple and he burns incense and 80 priests follow him in and they say, no, O king, this is not for you to do. You are not to burn incense. You are not a priest. And rather than Uzziah saying, you know what? You're right. Cooler heads have prevailed. My bad. I acted presumptuously. I'm rethinking my thinking. I am so sorry. How can I undo this? Instead of that contrition and repentance, his anger burns. And so God strikes him with leprosy. Doesn't just kill him on the spot. Strikes him with leprosy and he will go into unclean housing. He will lose his reign. He will lose his community. He will lose his prestige. He will lose his life because he thought wrongly about God. In the midst of all of this darkness, at least there was one good king, but the king has died in the year that King Uzziah died. So then, to help us really understand what Isaiah is writing in chapter 6, I would outline the chapter thus. Verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Verses 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see the humility of the servant. And then verses 8 to the end of the chapter, we will see the hardness of the message. The holiness of God, the humility of the servant, the hardness of the message. So picking up again in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This Lord is Adonai. In other words, Isaiah says, in the year the king died, I saw the king. It's subtle, but we're not supposed to miss it. Uzziah was my uncle, Isaiah says. Not directly, but we're pretty sure that his father was brother to the king. And so it's a very dark time for Isaiah. In the year that Uzziah the king died, I saw the king. Just like every other human ruler or king or tyrant or president or whomever, they all die. But I saw the deathless and infinite Lord. I saw the king. The king has died, but I saw the king who is deathless, who rules eternal. And he is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. This is interesting. We'll find out in a moment that Isaiah is transported to the temple, but the temple has changed. This priest king is seated in the temple. Uzziah was not permitted to enter the temple because he's just a king. But there is one who is sitting on a throne because he's a king, and he's in the temple because he's also a priest. And he's seated. That's very strange. The high priest was never permitted to sit down in the temple, for starters, because there's no chair. It's hard to sit down when there's no furniture. But there's no furniture because the work of the high priest is never finished. He's always making intercession for the people. But Isaiah is transported to the temple and he sees this one who is massive, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. On a throne, he's a king. He's in the temple. He's also a priest. But not only that, the, the temple has changed in Isaiah's vision. Things have gotten so dark around him that he now sees clearly God gives him a vision. Typically in the temple, there is the First opening, which is the holy place that has the temple uh, table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And then there's a veil, and then there's the Holy of Holies, which contains the Ark of the Covenant. And it was believed by this time in the southern kingdom that God dwelled on the Ark of the Covenant lid between the two cherubim. And that he was small, and that he was little, and that he was portable, and that he was user-friendly. 
and that he was at the back of the house and was generally irrelevant and disinterested. But this God has moved to the front of the house on full display and there is no more dividing wall. He is seated in the front of the temple to be seen. And Isaiah says he is high, he is lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. We usually translate that train. It's a bad translation. We know that ancient monarchs in that day and age were not wearing trains on their robes like a bridal gown. It was just a tight, tight robe. And so what Isaiah sees is the shul of his garment. The hem of his garment, just the hem, fills the largest building in Isaiah's comprehension. Just the hem of his garment. So you have this sense that Isaiah is prostrate, face down, straining to look his up as much as he can, just to raise his eyes. And all he can see is the hem of this garment. And the hem of the garment fills the entire temple. In other words, this God is big. He's way bigger than the people have been behaving as though he were small. He's very, very big. And he's seated in front of house. Isaiah's vision continues in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. This word is translated seraphim because there is no translation. We don't know exactly what this is. It comes from Numbers 21, the word seraph. It means the burning ones. It's the same word that is used of the fiery serpents that were sent to bite the children of Israel in the Exodus because they too were thinking wrongly about God. They were thinking him too small. They were thinking him disinterested, thinking him too weak. And so fiery serpents came and bit them. That has led many people to believe that these seraphim are also serpent-like creatures. We don't know. We know that they're hot. That's what it means. They're the flaming ones. Here's what we also know about them is that they have six wings, each had six wings, with two he covered his face as a sign of, I can't look upon this great and glorious being. These are awesome creatures who may be flaming dragon-like serpents, the kind of thing you would expect Winfred Hodges to paint on the side of his conversion van. I don't know, but they're awesome beings, and they have six wings, and with two they cover their faces. They are innocent, spotless, sinless, righteous beings who have never experienced any kind of unrighteousness whatsoever and they do not dare to look directly upon the one who is seated in front of them. With two, they cover their feet. More than likely, that actually means they cover their whole bodies because they don't want to be exposed in any way to the glory of the one who is seated before them. With two, they flew to demonstrate the speed with which they carry out service to this priest king seated before them. Verse three, and one called to another and said, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Here's what we know about these seraphim. They show up nowhere else in scripture, only here in Isaiah 6. We know that they are flaming in some sense, that they are awesome because their voices shake the entire earth, that they have six wings, and that they speak Hebrew. These are pretty cool. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh, Tzavaot. And they keep saying that over and over and over, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, commander of the armies of heaven. He's bigger than you think. He's greater than you can imagine. And what do they say after that? They say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, commander of the armies of heaven. Is this new information for them or for God? No. But this is worship. They are telling God that which God already knows to be true about himself so that they will be blessed and bettered. 
When we sing the songs that we sung this morning, it's not like it's new information. We are recounting the things that are true of God so that our feeling and our thinking are expanded and increased. That's worship. They're modeling worship for us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is not just a proclamation of reality. This is a stinging rebuke of the people of Israel. Don't you see? You have thought him too small. You thought he merely existed between the cherubim on the lid of the ark at the back of the temple. No, the whole earth is his dwelling. If you would but have eyes to see, that you would think rightly and feel deeply. So they say, holy, holy, holy. It is the only of his attributes that is repeated three times. It is true that God is love, but you'll never see that God is love, love, love. It is true that God is a jealous God. You will never see that he is jealous, jealous, jealous. So what does it mean that he is holy, holy, holy? This is Hebrew superlative. It's the author's way of highlighting, underlining, bold, italic with a smiley face emoji at the end. This is as big a deal of it as he can possibly make. He is holy. So if that's true, what does holy actually mean? Well, trust me and believe me when I say, I have been studying on this and reading on this for literally months. And here's the bottom line. Nobody knows. There are those who think that holy means separate or cut off. Because that's the ancient meaning of that word in its etymological origin. That centuries early, kadosh, meant separate or cut off. But by the time Isaiah writes this, it no longer actually means that. It means something different. And besides, are the seraphim flying around the head of this priest king saying, separate, separate, separate? No, that can't be it because he's actually moved to the front of house. He's on display and he wants to be near the people. He has told us that for five chapters. Well, there are those that will say holy simply means moral or pure, as if he's just better than we are. Really, does that capture the whole spirit? The seraphim are flying around the throne room saying, moral, moral, moral. Some of you may think that about God, but he is much, much more than that. No, that can't capture the full essence of what holy means either. So I have thought, I have prayed, I have studied, I have researched. I have come up with what I believe is the correct definition of the word holy. It goes like this. And candidly, it's brilliant. It goes like this. Holy is gaudy. Not gaudy, G-A-W-D-Y. I mean gaudy, it's G-O-D-D-Y. Holy is goddishness. Holy is the unique adjective for God himself. It's what God is. It's what God is like. We have to capture all of Isaiah 6 to understand this. Isaiah is not merely hearing a thing. Isaiah is seeing a thing. He's feeling a thing. He is smelling a thing. And all of what he experiences and hears and sees and smells is intended to explain what does holy mean. Holy is God fully devoted, committed, consecrated to his own godness. We know that because Isaiah chapter 6 comes right after chapter 5. I know, I know. I'm here all week. Listen, it comes right after chapter 5 in which we learn something very important. God says, I am holy. You have not been. And I will move forward my righteousness and my godness to address that. That's what holy is. God moving his godness forward. It's been said that glory is his holiness revealed. 
That glory is his holiness revealed. That his holiness is his glory concealed. It is God godding. That's holy. Which is why we can hear a passage like in Leviticus that says that the shovel at the altar in the temple is a holy shovel. How can it be a holy shovel? It's just a shovel. Ah, because that shovel is devoted to nothing else other than God. It is only to be used for God's purpose. It's a holy shovel. And God has declared it holy. It is a holy implement. Which is why also Peter will tell us in the New Testament, be holy because he is holy. Does that mean be separate, be cut off? No. Does that mean be moral? Just be better than you are. Some of us read passages like that that say, be holy because I am holy. And we go, well, I'm not and I'm not going to be. So, meh. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. No, no, no. That's in there for a reason. Be like the shovel. Fully devoted, committed, consecrated to be fully used for the purpose of God. That's why, oh, what's his name? What's his name? Um, uh, Jesus. Why he will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, and strength. Fully God's. Just like the shovel in the altar in the temple, fully God's. Fully devoted, committed, consecrated to his purpose. That's being holy. Holy, holy, holy. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. At first we just know that this is a priest king. He's royal, he's also priestly, and he's seated on the throne in the temple, but now we're told that he's God. The smoke is this word that is the same idea as the pillar of smoke and cloud that led the children of Israel in the Exodus as God goes before them. This is Isaiah trying to communicate and convey that this is God. He's not just some super being, he is divine, he is deity, and he fills the entire temple. So there we see the holiness of God, which leads us then Verse 5, the humility of the servant. Isaiah says, And I said, Woe is me. This is not merely Isaiah saying, Uh oh, this is a curse. Woe is me means I wish that I were dead because it wouldn't feel this bad. For five chapters, Isaiah has walked around the southern kingdom saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In other words, it would be better for you not to exist because God's moving his godness towards your wickedness. Woe to you that you would be undone. But Isaiah here, he sees God, the priest king, and he says, woe to me. May I be undone. Listen to what he says in verse five. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. I am ruined. I am coming apart at the atomic level. I am experiencing what the U.S. military calls rapid disassembly. I'm blowing up in this place because I'm a person of unclean lips. It's me. I'm the problem. Some of you will remember about 18 years ago, after 9-11, the Twin Towers were attacked, as was the Pentagon. Many thousands of people died. And two very prominent famous, well-known American pastor preachers stood up and said that what happened with the towers was a direct result of God's judgment on our nation because of the rise of homosexuality, sexual sin, and abortion. Were they right? Were they wrong? Well, they were partly right, which means they were entirely wrong 
There's no question that the Lord judges nations in the near term. The Old Testament says that God speaks through war. But he also judges ultimately at the end of the age. The problem was that these two prominent pastors publicly called out and ridiculed the sin of somebody else. A specific group that they judged. That's not what Isaiah does. For five chapters, Isaiah has been saying, Woe to you, Israel. Woe to you, Israel. But then Isaiah sees God. Isaiah sees God and there is literally an earthquake. But Isaiah sees God and he has a soul quake. And that's the point. He realizes that he is the chief culprit. The problem is him. He is the one who is the person of unclean lips. And he lives among a people of unclean lips. All of the indictments that he's been handing down, he now associates with and says, I'm part of the problem. It starts with me. This is the humility of the servant. Woe is me, for I am ruined or lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why do I feel this way? For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh, of the commander of the armies of heaven. Yahweh Almighty. I have seen him, and therefore I see my own sin. Anytime you see anybody calling out the specific sin of a subset of the population, you can pretty well be certain that they have not looked at God themselves. Because if they would, that would silence their critique. Verse 5 transitions to, if I may, give you the gospel according to Isaiah. Two of my favorite verses in the entirety of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Please notice, Isaiah is face down. He has seen God. He's been wrecked by his own wretchedness. I am a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah does not say, God, please save me. Rescue me. Redeem me. Please save me. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm ruined. It's over. You are a holy God moving forward in godness and I am a man of wretched wickedness. All he does is confess his sin. He does not ask to be saved and God moves to him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, dispatched instantly by God at that confession of sin, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is the altar of sacrifice. It is not the altar of incense. Incense does not produce coals. This is the altar of sacrifice, meaning this is something innocent that has died for something guilty. Something shed its blood and died so that something guilty might have life. God dispatches and takes a burning coal that even one of these flaming seraphim beings can't just hold, takes it with tongs from the altar because it is such a white hot thing. And he flies directly to Isaiah and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. <laughs> I kind of like that. As if a flaming angel creature who touches your face with fire then has to explain to you what just happened. Like I think Isaiah knows. Yeah, I felt, I got it. I just touched your face with fire. Oh, is that what happened? Got it. But the angel, the seraph, is explaining something. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. It is removed. It is no longer on you. It has been applied to something else. Your sin is atoned for. The exact same place that Isaiah says, here is the problem. God addresses it directly. Now you have to put yourself in Isaiah's sandals here. That's the intent of the narrative. 
He's face down. He sees a holy, glorious, righteous, God-moving-forward kind of God. And he's just confessed his error. And a flaming, massive being whose voice shakes the earth flies at him with fire. He's not thinking, oh, goody, I'm about to recite the sinner's prayer. He's thinking, I'm dead. I deserve to die. I am a man of wretched wickedness. That's a holy God. But God intervenes and applies his guilt and sin to the work of an innocent on his behalf. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So the holiness of God, the humility of the servant, now leads us to the hardness of the message. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? This is not an early reference to the Trinity. That's not been revealed to Isaiah yet at this time in uh, Revelation history. This is God addressing the heavenly courtroom, if you will. The, the majestic court. Who will go for us? Then I said, looking around and seeing nobody else? No, that's not why. It's because Isaiah says, because of who you are, because of what you have done for me, can I please go? Here I am. Can I please have some small part in what you are doing and what you are saying? He already has been a prophet on God's behalf declaring denunciations and indictments. Now he says, can I please go and talk about your goodness and your glory and your grace? Verse 9, and he said, go and say to this people the absolute worst pastoral ordination sermon ever given and it's given by God. You're going to go preach and everyone's going to hate you. Yay. Verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I want you to tell the truth. And because you tell the truth, they will not believe. And I don't want them to. I am holy. I have moved forward in my holiness and my godness. I have pronounced judgment on this generation. I don't want them to repent. I have pronounced judgment upon them. We don't like to think of God in that way. But he's already said in chapter 5, I am a holy God moving forward in holiness. And I will address this. I will move my godliness to the wickedness of the world. It's too much for Isaiah to bear. And so he says in verse 11, how long, O Lord? A day? A week? Maybe just a long sermon series. Maybe just a year. God answers. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Because you will tell the truth, they will not believe. We see Jesus himself reference this in Matthew chapter 13 addressing the Pharisees. More poignantly, we see it in John chapter 8 as he's in the temple courts and he tells the leaders of Israel, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. He doesn't say, although I tell you the truth. No, he says, because I tell you the truth, you are confirmed and sealed in your judgment. It's a hard word. In Isaiah, God says, you will preach this message until there is desolation and devastation in the land. No, you don't dress it up. You don't try to make it relevant. You just make it clear. You tell the truth. You leave the results up to me. Verse 12, and the Lord removes far, people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Even if a remnant should remain, even that will be ravaged. 
Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Even in the midst of hopelessness and horrific judgment, there is still hope. The stump that remains will sprout and there will be a holy seed that emerges from the desolation and the devastation because God is holy, holy, holy. He is devoted, committed, and consecrated to his godness and he will move forward. So how does this attribute of God, this holiness of God, actually impact and influence our thinking, our living today? I want to give you three quick implications from this passage. I'm sure there could be many, many more. I'm just going to leave you with three. The first one goes like this. A right view of God produces a right view of sin. Missionaries, evangelists, pastors, teachers, anybody who shares their faith on a regular basis will tell you that in the 21st century, the hardest thing to convince anybody of is the doctrine of sin. I work in downtown Tyler, essentially in a coffee shop. I deal with people every day who are in skinny jeans and deep swooping v-neck t-shirts. And I have opportunities all the time to talk to people about theology and doctrine and the things of my faith. I really haven't had anybody push back any time recently on the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God eternally existing in three persons and there is one God. And they say, great, good for you, I don't care. That has no bearing on my life. You want to believe that? Great. They believe there's thousands of gods. Why are you better than them? You're the same thing. Just a different religion. There are many paths up the mountain. I don't care. And I go, okay. Okay. Well, what about Jesus? He's both God and man. 100% God, 100% man. And they go, I don't care. That's fine for you. They have their prophet. He rode a horse to heaven. Why is yours any better? Good for you. You believe that? You believe, they believe that? I don't care. You can believe whatever you want to believe. I say, okay, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. The resurrection the resurrection. Jesus was alive sinlessly. He died. He was buried. He rose again. They go, good for you. You believe that? They believe that over there. You all have different ideas. You all have different theories. It's all the same. Can't we all just get along? At which point I usually douse them with hot black coffee and I say, hold on. Let's talk about sin. And it's that conversation that always makes things turn. When I say, listen, Everybody understands intuitively and instinctively that there is something after this life, but that something has gone wrong inside of you and of me, and we cannot have peace with God by our own merit. We simply cannot. Even our good stuff prevents us from being in God's presence. Our good stuff prevents us from having peace with God here and now, as well as for all eternity. You can't earn it. And they go, hold on a second, hold on a second. Are you telling me you're telling me that I'm a bad person? And I say, oh no, it's way worse than you think. You're absolutely horrible. There's nothing good in you whatsoever. Even your mama should be ashamed of you. And you can watch as the fists clench and the knuckles whiten because the doctrine of sin is so repulsive. And yet, it is that recognition that is what prompts God to act on Isaiah's behalf. Now, ironically, what this passage is helping us to understand, that the best way to help people understand the doctrine of sin is not to beat them upside the head and face with law. If you simply begin telling people what is moral, they will invent new and creative ways of doing evil. See also Romans 1. People's problem is not a lack of information. Adam and Eve didn't do what they did because they just didn't know enough. No, 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 no. They weren't thinking rightly or bigly enough about their God. 
The best way to confront people with the doctrine of sin is to show them a picture of a high and glorious holy God. That's what Isaiah experiences. Which leads me to the second point. It goes like this. Regular worship produces a right view of God. If it's a right view of God that produces a right view of sin, then it is regular worship that produces a right view of God, do you see? In other words, church matters. When we come together corporately as a community and we unpack God's word and we think theologically, it matters massively. Yes, you are supposed to have an individual walk with Christ. Yes, you're supposed to read your Bible and highlight it and Instagram it and get many likes. Good for you. But if that's all that you ever do and you are a charter member of Bedside Baptist Church and that's where it stops, then you are only about two steps away from descending into some great grand historical heresy. That's always how it happens. Some dude all by himself with his Bible, yes, it's usually a guy, has created all of the great heresies of history. Instead, we have to do this peaceably in community, which is also why I hear all the time I have family members like this, I have neighbors like this, I have friends like this. Fortunately, I don't have many coworkers like this that will say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to church. I've heard all the stories. I know all the stories. I know about Daniel and Goliath. I know about David and the lion's den. I know about Jonah and the ark. I got it all already. And I go, uh, well, for, okay, never mind. Tell me about God. What do you think about God? And they go, well, he's, he's, he's big. He's, he's good. He, he's always there for me. He, he, he helps me out when I need him. And um, yeah, that's, that's God. And I go, oh, you mean the genie from Aladdin. Yeah, he's not real. I wouldn't worship that God either because he doesn't exist. But then I get to talk about what this God is like. And we sing songs like we've sung this morning. And we proclaim the excellencies of our God. And I get to hear as you proclaim, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, the captain of the armies of heaven. And I think, my brothers and my sisters believe this too. This is good. Regular worship produces a right view of God. I need you. We need to do this with frequency. A regular and a right recognition of God is what we need. And it's what this world needs most. Which leads me to our third point. It goes like this. A right view of sin produces regular worship. Now I know that this is circular and cyclical. It's intended to be. That's Isaiah 6. When we begin to grasp the enormity of our sin, the severity of our sin, the depths of our depravity before a God who is fully devoted, committed, and, and consecrated to his godness in the world and what he has done for us that produces worship, I simply want to respond to who God is, to what he has done, and who he has declared me to be. A man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. But he has declared me holy. He calls me son. He calls me saint. And the book of Leviticus says, what God has declared holy, no one shall call common. And all I want to do is respond and react to the goodness and the glory of my God. And then regardless of the perceived or the potential outcomes, all I want to do is talk about who this God is and what he has done. Just like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Doesn't really matter how people respond. I want to be faithful to articulate the grace of my God. God is holy. He is fully devoted, committed, and consecrated to his godness. That's what it means to be holy. Now, in the 
fall semester of last year and the spring semester of this year, we got to preach through at all of our campuses the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we learned something absolutely phenomenally amazing about this Jesus that we spent that entire school year studying through. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, here's what we find out. That the one Isaiah sees, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, that one, that priest, king, deity, is actually Jesus. It is a pre-incarnate Christ. John tells us the one Isaiah sees, that's Jesus. Now, when we think rightly about this Jesus, that that's him seated on the throne and the hem of his robe fills the temple, that he is awesome, that he is holy, holy, holy. He is the captain of the armies of heaven and he's fully devoted, consecrated, and committed to his godness moving forward. And then we think about what the rest of the Gospel of John says, that the one who is seated on the throne descends and becomes a defenseless, vulnerable baby, lives a spotless, sinless life in thought, word, and deed. And the one who said, I am so devoted to my godness, let me show you how serious I am about judging the wickedness of this world. Then he is stripped naked, beaten, mocked, spat upon, punched in the face, hanged on a cross to suffer. And all of the judgments pronounced at the end of chapter six, the desolation, the barrenness, the the taken away from others, that all happens to him himself. He becomes the burning coal from the altar who takes away guilt and atones for sin. The one seated on the throne becomes the coal that is taken to cleanse Isaiah and to cleanse me. He is holy, holy, holy. So much so that he became flesh, that he died, he became the sacrifice so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. What a God we serve in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself.